I'm not entirely certain when this started, but I've been noticing with increasing frequency that there has been a jarring change in the ways that Christian leaders talk about Christian worship. And this became very vivid uh, into my mind when recently, within the last few weeks, I heard a pastor uh, giving his rationale for canceling the worship on Christmas Sunday. And uh, he said, I'm I'm just only slightly uh, paraphrasing here, this pastor, he said that he cares deeply about the Sunday morning worship experience, but coming to church on Christmas morning does not enhance that worship experience. And I thought to myself, that's funny. Christian worship used to be called service, not experience. Oh, Ken, come on, you're just splitting hair here, aren't you? Don't they mean the same thing? No, they don't mean the same thing at all. Does it really matter? Yes, it matters profoundly. And that is actually the first thing I want to draw your attention to this morning. And from this passage, we see the worshiping church, the worshiping church. Now, Acts chapter 13 is a transition point because in chapters 1 through 12, the main focus has been on the gospel proclamation to the Jewish people. Yes, here and there we met some Gentiles who were converted to the Lord, but by and large, the main focus of chapters 1 through 12 was how the gospel was going forth and progressing among the Jewish people. And the main characters were Peter and other Jewish leaders. But here in chapter 13 is a transition point because from this point on, Luke's focus is no longer on the gospel progress among the Jewish people, but among, uh, he f- places the focus on gospel proclamation to the Gentiles. And in fact, in this chapter, chapter 13, verse 4, this is the very beginnings of Paul's missionary journeys uh, to the Gentiles. And so here at this important juncture, important transition point, you note that Luke prefaces this transition with some very important observations. First, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And then Luke then mentions five names, uh, but does not tell us which ones were the prophets and which ones were the teachers. And it seems to me that Luke does not really see them, prophets and teachers, as separate functions. As is the case in much of the New Testament, uh, the prophets and teachers are, are largely overlapping functions in that prophets are those who exegete and teach prophetic scriptures about Christ. So that's the first thing we note about this church. There were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, people who were proclaiming Christ. Secondly, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now, the Greek word used here for worship is 
a later gale. Now, if you think that sounds sort of familiar, because it is. Uh, the, this is a verb, worship, but the noun form of the Greek word is where we get the word liturgy. Liturgy. And what's interesting about this word is that the Greek people use this word when uh, Greek citizens performed public service at their own expenses. So some of the leading Greek citizens, they were expected to serve their communities, their cities, and their nation by, for example, maintaining public uh, infrastructure, buildings, uh, underwriting various other uh, needs of the community. And, and the word uh, from which we get liturgy was the word used to describe their service. And what's interesting is that the Old Testament, which was written in the Hebrew language, was at some point translated into the Greek language. And the translators used the word liturgy to translate the Hebrew words for worship and ministry to God. And that idea and pattern then continues throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. And the thinking is that church serves God when believers gather together to worship. Hence, worship service. Because worship is a service offered unto the Lord. And that's why there is a world of difference in terms of thinking worship as worship experience and worship Service. Worship experience makes man the center of worship. Because when you think of worship in terms of worship experience, what that means is that what matters most in the worship is what we get out of worship, what we experience in that worship. But worship service is given to God. God is at the center of worship. And that's important for us to think about because when worship is man-centered and when worship exists for the sake of man's experience, then there is little room for prayer. Now, what do you mean? Every Christian prays. What I mean is that when worship is man-centered, there is little room for prayer that is uh, more than a list of demands to God for a more glorious life. You see, bad worship results in bad prayers. And when worship is about you, the resulting prayer life is a list of demands to God. This is what I want so that my life can be better. And in man-centered worship, there is no room for falling before God's majesty. And in man-centered worship, there is no room for fasting because fasting is most definitely about your enjoyment. Fasting is most definitely not something which you say, man, that made me feel great. Because fasting is an act of self Denial. 
And that is what tells us uh, what this church at Antioch was really like. It was a worshiping church. In their gathering together, they were offering service to the Lord in their prayer and in their fasting. And that leads us to notice a second thing about the church. It is a sending church. It is a sending church. Antioch Church served God through its worship and fasting. That means the church was seeking God's will, even putting aside the demands of hunger in order to receive God's guidance. One of the things uh, that's become popular these days is what's called intermittent fasting. Uh, You fast, you skip a few meals to lose some weight. Now, in the Bible, fasting is never for the purpose of getting in shape. Uh, In the Bible, the whole idea of fasting is denying yourself what is imperative for your survival, demanding yourself the incessant cries of hunger, in order that you may prioritize your relationship with God, in order that you may focus on God without distraction. And so this church was seeking God's will, fasting, because in their fasting they were saying, understanding your will, O Lord, is more important than the critically important act of eating. Knowing your purpose is more important than anything that I can do or we can do for ourselves. And so they were seeking God's guidance through prayer and through fasting, and guidance came. So we read, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now a church that markets and sells worship experience is inevitably self-centered. Because you see, uh, it needs to advertise celebrity preachers and charismatic leaders in order to attract the shoppers of religious experience. But a church that offers worship service to God is generous. Notice here how the Holy Spirit demanded from the Antioch church their two best leaders. I mean, who was Barnabas? Barnabas was the son of encouragement. He was the man of unusual spiritual insight who saw and understood God's redemptive purpose in Saul when no one else did. And Barnabas was the kind of man who, having brought Saul into the fellowship of the church and then quickly discovering that Saul was much more gifted and capable than he was, Barnabas was was that kind of man who was not threatened by a more gifted believer, but he rejoiced and he supported Saul. You know, people like Barnabas, humble, who gives himself away gladly, 
who joyfully supports other people and builds other people up. You know, people like Barnabas are huge asset to any church. And then there is Saul. And of course, Saul, he is already proving himself as a very capable preacher. And when the Holy Spirit needed servants to take the gospel to the people who have never heard, the Holy Spirit did not demand second-rate servants. But he demanded the cream of the crop. And when the Holy Spirit called them, the Antioch church sent them. And so we read here, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You see, the church through prayer and fasting confirmed the Holy Spirit's call and sent the two men off with their blessing. The Holy Spirit and the church work in concert. The Spirit leads, the church follows. The Spirit calls, the church sends. And that's something that's really important for us to recognize here. The church that worships God is an obedient church. And the church that worships God is a generous church. They send their best. They send their most precious for the sake of those that have not heard the gospel. And so we really need to get away from this mindset that we send into the mission fields people who can't get a pastorate in this country. We need to get away from the mindset that mission fields are for the second-rate preachers, second-rate leaders. No, we need to send to the nations the best of our people, the most gifted, most capable. And that's what the church at Antioch did. So the church at Antioch, it is a worshiping church. And secondly, it is a sending church. Lastly, it is a powerful church. Powerful church. Now notice here that Barnabas and Saul left Antioch, which as you know is in Syria. And they went to Seleucia, which is a a port city on the coast of Mediterranean Sea. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus, which is an island just off the coast. Uh, And they landed at Salamis, which is a town on the eastern shores of the island of Cyprus. They first went to the synagogues of the Jews, and they proclaimed the word of God. And not stopping there, they made their way through the entire island, proclaiming the gospel. And eventually, they reached Paphos a town on the western shores of Cyprus. Now, if you go home today, uh, whether you use Google Maps or Apple Maps, if you look up Cyprus and if you zoom in, there is still a town called Paphos on the western coast of Cyprus. It's still there. So they landed on the eastern shores, and they began their uh, preaching tour, working their way through the island until they reached the west coast of the island. And there... They met a certain magician, uh, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. His name literally means son of Jesus or son of salvation. Uh, This man, he had attached himself to an island official, Sergius Paulus, 
And he attached himself to him, obviously for power, for influence, and no doubt for income. But the proconsul, uh, it's roughly a governor of the island. Uh, He was a man of intelligence, we read here. And I think he sensed that this man, Bar-Jesus, he wasn't what he was making himself out to be. And so he summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And Elymas, the magician, he felt his influence and income coming under threat, and he opposed the gospel. It's really fascinating to me uh, when people oppose the gospel very often, more, th- more often than not, there is always the issue of power and money. You know, you would like to think that atheists uh, really oppose the gospel because of their sincere philosophical convictions. And some of them, that's true. But, but very often, it's really about influence, about power, and about money. And that's what Elymas was doing. And then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, if it ends there, if it just ended with those words, then, then there's really nothing that sets Paul apart from Bar-Jesus. There's nothing that sets apart the prophet-teacher of the Lord from the false prophet. But it did not end with mere words because Paul's words had power. And Paul continues, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And then it happened just as he said. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Paul's words had power. And loved ones, that is the power of the church. You see, the church's power does not consist in amount of property that the church owns. And the church's power is not about uh, the influence it wields over the powerful people. And the church's power It's not about the sway it has over the society. Rather, the Holy Spirit is the church's power. The power of the church is the proclamation of the message of both judgment and salvation. And that power did not originate in Paul. It came from the Holy Spirit, and it was administered to Paul by the churches praying and fasting. I remember reading this very challenging and moving story. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, the great preacher, um, he, during his lifetime, was known as the great gospel preacher, and under his ministry, 
many untold number of people were converted to the Lord. And once he was asked, you know, what's your secret? And Spurgeon answered that while he is preaching, there are groups, hundreds of people downstairs praying while he was preaching the gospel. And I think we forget that sometimes. I think we forget that the power of the Word of God comes from the Holy Spirit mediated by God's people who pray and fast for the success of the gospel. And we should never forget, loved ones, that the success of missionary work depends on the sending church that prays and fasts for gospel success. This is the first of the year, and this is the time to make some resolutions. And may I encourage you to keep in your prayers and to lift up the labors of missionaries, gospel workers throughout the world, because the success of their ministry is very much dependent, and it is empowered by your prayer and your fasting. Finally, we see a beautiful hope in this passage. I can't help but think that this must have been a a very thoughtful moment for Paul because there are many things in this passage that reminds us of Paul's past, doesn't it? You know, he, Paul, he once opposed the gospel and he was struck with blindness for a time. He had to led away by the hand and he was found staying on a street called Straight. And now Paul, confronting this false prophet, he rebukes Elymas, saying, Stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord as blindness comes upon him, and he is led away by hand. So I can't help but think uh, that this was a very thought-provoking moment for Paul, and it should be a thought-provoking passage for you and for me. Because this is a sobering passage, isn't it? Because the word of God that goes with power is message of salvation because it is also the message of judgment. There is no news of salvation without the news of judgment. And Elymas, for opposing God's kingdom, setting himself against the good news of Jesus Christ, he was judged. And this is a horrible event for him. But it also shows us the power of the gospel because Jesus saved Paul, who was just like Elymas. And what that tells us in the power of Jesus' blood that saved Paul, who was once blind, who was once opposed to the will of the Lord, that tells us that every sinner that repents and turns to the Lord will be saved. Now, we do not know what became of this man, Elymas. It's a mystery. 
at least to us. But your story and my story need not be a mystery. Because even if you have lived your whole life fighting God's purpose and fighting God's will, today, here and now, God's grace is for you. You know, it's not, it's not too late. Maybe at this time of the year, as you look back, and you are very sharply reminded of the ways that you did not walk in the ways of the Lord, that you did not honor the Lord in your life and in your heart. And maybe this morning you are struck with a sense of shame and regret and guilt and pain. Why? Why have I done that with my short life? But here's the good news for you. It is not too late. You can repent, you can believe, and Jesus will save you. And starting today, the rest of your life can become an honorable service to the Lord. And that is the hope of the gospel, and that is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So will you make the turn today? Your life is short. No longer live your short and precious life for things that ultimately do not matter. Give your life to the Lord. And even from here today and henceforth, your life can be and will be an honorable service to the Lord in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us, and we thank you for teaching us how these early Christians served you with faith and with joy. And we pray that that same may be said of us, that we have gladly and joyfully laid down at your feet, our lives, our resources, our strength, our time, and that through us and in us, your name was made great and glorious. And so bless us this year as we look forward to a new year filled with your guidance and with your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.